Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to 2 Samuel 18. 2 Samuel 18, uh, we'll go ahead and get uh, started um, in the life of David. Winston Churchill once said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. Isn't that the truth? We're going to take a look at some hard truths in the life of David today and Let the Holy Spirit teach us what we should do with that. Let me give you a brief overview of David's life to date so far. The prophet Samuel anointed David at about age 12. Somewhere in that neck of the wood is king over Israel. He was the youngest son of Jesse, had a number of older brothers, so he was the child in that particular family. At around 17 years old, plus or minus, he kills Goliath and he becomes an instant national hero while still a teenager. Now, you think about a 17-year-old being a national hero today, and you understand the pressures that that produced. King Saul is not a fool. He keeps him in the palace, and he becomes a celebrated warrior in the Israeli Israeli army uh, with Saul. At about age 20, 19 to 20, Saul tries to kill him on multiple occasions. Saul is insanely jealous, uh, knows that he's anointed the next king, and wants to take him out. David and Jonathan worked together uh, during this period of time, who's his best friend and the crown prince. And so at about age 20, uh, David flees to the Negev, which is the southern desert of Judah. It's a wilderness area. And he spends about 10 years with a group really of outlaws, of people who are also in trouble with King Saul, and he becomes their leader. Many of the Psalms were written during this 10-year period of time. At age 30, he's crowned king over Judah, which is the southern tribe. He was born of the tribe of Judah, so this is his family. And he he rules over Judah for seven and a half years. And then he's crowned king over all 12 tribes at age 37 and a half. So from age 30, from the time he's crowned king of Judah till about age 50, everything you read about David is success. It is unparalleled success. Victory, success, blessing beyond comprehension. At age, during that period of time, he breaks God's law by acquiring seven wives and multiple concubines. So he sets a model that Solomon will take to extremes. About age 50, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, murders her husband in an attempt to cover it up. God in his mercy gives David eight, nine months to percolate on this and confess, and he does not. So God sends Nathan to him. Nathan is the prophet. And as you recall, Nathan tells David a word picture about a shepherd and a sheep and confronts him with his sin. David confesses and repents. God forgives his sin, keeps him as king, but pronounces disciplinary judgment on David that will last the rest of his life. From an earthly point of view, the last 20 years of David's life 
are a disaster. It is literally one calamity after another. He and Bathsheba's son that is born of their adultery dies seven days after childbirth. David's oldest son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. That probably is within a year or two of that. Two years after that, David's third son, Absalom, murders Amnon, his oldest son, the crown prince, and flees into exile up north in the Geisher. David and Absalom will not meet face-to-face for five years. Absalom stays in exile for three. David brings him back home, puts him under house arrest, refuses to see his face. Clearly, there's a lack of forgiveness and lack of restoration, a lack of repentance and lack of confession. There's just a lot of things that are not taking place that need to take place. They meet one time, and after that, Absalom spends the next four years deceiving his father, David, and building a coalition to revolt, overthrow dad, and take over the kingdom. Now Absalom is leading an army to kill David. So David right now is between 60 and 62 years old. He's fled across the Jordan River to the city of Mahanaim. Mahanaim is the, means two camps. It literally was where Jacob, hundreds of years before, came back from his, sister, his, his wife's family, Laban, and was going back to the land. And so he met an angel of the Lord there, and it was the host of the Lord in David's camp, so that's why it's called Two Camps. And Rob's going to show you a kind of a picture of where Mahanaim fits in. It's on the east side of the Jordan River and north. So let's pick up the story, the narrative, at, in chapter 17, verse 24. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan to the east, he and all the men of Israel with him. Verse 25, Absalom set Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Now Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Ithra the Israelite, who went into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. Keep your eye on 25. We're coming back to that. And Israel and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. Now when David had come to Mahanaim, Shobi the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the sons of Ammon, Machir the son of Amiel from Lodibar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim. Don't you love all these names? I mean... Wonderful, right? See, we're tempted just to skip over that and go, nah, it's not relevant to me. I mean, I speak, you know, Oildale, and that ain't Oildale. So, you know, just, it's not relevant. Everything in Scripture is relevant. Even the spaces between the words are relevant. Verse 28, and they brought beds, basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curds, wheat. They went down and stole everything from hotels, and they brought it in, right? I mean, this is the deal. They're bringing the food, lots of it, and lots of grain and lots of needs. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Now, Absalom's going to come after David. So David flees Jerusalem. He goes north and east. And Mahanaim is a very logical place for him to go because it was a fortified city, one of the few. And it was built on the Jabbok River. So obviously they had water and fortification. Now, in the past, this was the same city where Saul's youngest son, Ishbosheth, had run a puppet government under Abner, the, king, the, the general of the ten northern tribes, for a number of years. So David went back to there. The residents of Israel looked pretty favorably on David because Mephibosheth uh, was Saul's grandson. And David, remember, had showed a lot of kindness to Mephibosheth. And so he thought, well, if I go back to Mahanaim, they know me and it's a good place to, to be. And when he was there, it says there are three friends. 
that supplied him with what he needed, much needed goods. Shobi is the brother of Hanun, and Hanun is the king of the Amorites, and their capital is Rabbah. Today that's Jordan, the, the state of Jordan, and the city is Amman. So Amman, Jordan is the same location of Rabbah where the Ammonites were. So you're going to see the same location has had cities for thousands of years. They change names, the nations change, but if they're in a good location with water and any natural fortifications, you're going to see a city in the same spot for thousands of years, and it could go through 15, 20 different names. So Amon Jordan is the old Rabbah of Ammon, right? So years before, remember, David had showed kindness to Shobi's father, Nahash, and so Shobi now is returning the favor. Remember that Machir, the son of Amiel, he's the guy who lived in Lodibar, which means no pasture, and Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, was living in his house for free. This guy was a generous guy, very wealthy, very generous, and he let Mephibosheth stay with him for years, and then David came and took Mephibosheth and said, come and stay with the palace with me. You're Jonathan's youngest son, and I want to show kindness and favor to the house of Jonathan. So that's the connection now. And Machir remembers that, and so he's now repaying the favor. And Barzillai is a very young 80-year-old friend of David. You know, when you read the book, when you read the narrative, it says he's very old. He's 80. You know something? 80 ain't nothing. 80 is nothing. Just hang on. The closer we get, the younger it gets. <laughs> Write that one down. So he's very wealthy. He's very generous. He's 80 years old. He lives about 25 miles north of Mahanaim. And they're all three wealthy. All three are generous. All three have a relationship with David. I got to believe the Holy Spirit just prompted them. David comes across the river. They have a relationship with him and they meet his needs. And God supplies our needs through friends, does he not? Sometimes in many unexpected ways. Now remember, David doesn't come by himself. He's probably got between two and 3,000 people with him. So this is a lot of barbecue for a lot of days, right? So when they say they brought all this stuff, they're not kidding. It was literally probably mule trains full. So meanwhile, back at the ranch in Israel... Absalom has appointed Amasa as commander over the army. And you're saying, why did the Holy Spirit give us Amasa's pedigree? They say, well, he was born of so-and-so and so-and-so. Here's why that is so interesting. Apparently, David's mother was married more than once. She was married to Jesse, and they had seven boys. Apparently, she was married to a man named Nahash, N-A-H-A-S-H, and David's mother and this man, Nahash, raised two daughters, Abigail and Zeruiah. And you hear Zeruiah all the time. So these two girls, Abigail and Zeruiah, are David's half-sisters. Same mom, different father. Abigail is the mother of this general, Amasa. Abigail had a sister named Zeruiah, and she is the mother of Azahel, Abishai, and Joab. Remember those names? So Amasa, Azahel, Abishai, and Joab are all cousins. And they're all nephews of King David. Because his sister, Adam, right? Sisters, two half-sisters have these boys. So Amasa, David's nephew, is the commander for Absalom, who's trying to kill David. 
And Joab, his nephew, is the commander for David. All in the family, both in love and war. I mean, it's just interesting. I think we have the pedigree here to show the interconnection. All four of these warriors are literally cousins and nephews of King David. Chapter 18, verse 1. Then David numbered the people who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent the people out, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. He's the Philistine from Gath. Verse 5. This is an amazing verse. The king charged Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And... This phrase is critical. All the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. Here's the principle. We must see our children from God's point of view and treat them accordingly. We must see our children from God's point of view and treat them accordingly. So, David is safe. He's supplied with, um, with food. He immediately organizes his troops for the inevitable coming battle with Absalom because they're across the river now. Now remember, David almost always does best in a crisis. Almost always he is spiritually at his finest when he's in the middle of a crisis. Too much palace is not good for David. Desert is really good for David. And that's true for you and I too. Too much palace is not good for us. Affluence is, too much affluence is lethal. Too much comfort destroys our faith. You heard that this morning with Pastor Roger. If you haven't been to the service, you gotta go. So David divides his troop into three companies, one under Joab, one under Abishai, and one under Ittai. And you say, what's the point of that? Well, remember, he's got Israeli troops and he's got foreign troops. So Joab and Abishai are going to command the Israeli troops and Ittai, who's from Philistine, he's got a whole contingent of foreign troops and he's going to command those. Makes sense. And David offers to go into battle with them, but the people tell him, look, you don't go into battle with us, you stay in the city, you help us from there. The reality is, is the only one that Absalom wants dead is his dad. So keep the king safe, right? David says, whatever seems best to you, I will do. This doesn't sound like David, right? I mean, he's normally the bold leader that here's what we're going to do. And now it sounds like he's taking instructions from his soldiers. Whatever, whatever you think I will do. The truth of it is David doesn't want to go on the battlefield and meet his son. Right? I mean, you can see where that would be logical. He doesn't want to find his son. As a matter of fact, David publicly orders each commander to protect Absalom's life in the battle. He wants everyone to get the message. So he tells all the troops, he tells the commanders, but all the troops hear it as well. And you say, why is that so important to David? Well, Absalom is his son. He's rebellious. He wants to kill dad, but he's, David still loves him. Number two, you, you kind of look and you go, well, maybe David wants Absalom to be treated gently because God treated him gently. They both sinned, but God was gentle with David. And thirdly, and this is where I think it really boils down to, David has confused his feelings as a father with his duty as a king. 
And we as parents can get into that trap really easily. We have a huge contingent of parenting advice in our culture that wants us to treat our children like our pals. And they can be your pals when they're adults. But first they gotta get to adulthood, right? And learning, for them to learn how to adult means you have to train them. They will not become adults without good parents for the most part. Someone has said David, in David there was emotion wrestling with duty. You know, his emotion as a dad and his duty as a king. The truth of it is, David's family feud has now led to a national civil war. David's soldiers are putting their life on the line to protect David. Now he wants them not only protect him, he wants them to protect the life of the man who wants to kill him. So if you're one of David's soldiers, you go, why bother fighting with one hand tied behind my back? What, what's the point? There's only going to be one survivor. I mean, you can't have two kings. David doesn't want to die, but he doesn't want his son to die either. The truth of it is David has a long history of pampering his children and excusing their sins. Across the board, you will see this. The truth of it is Absalom should have been put to death years ago for murdering his brother Absalom, I mean Amnon. And it says David was very angry and did nothing. Absent parent. David refuses to see Absalom as a traitor who had destabilized the nations and whose activities are going to cause thousands of deaths. He still sees him as a young man. He's probably in his 30s. I know that's young, but it's old enough to be responsible, right? You know, every parent's heart goes out to David. He's in the middle of a conflict. But it's way too late to kiss and make up. That train left the station years ago. Jesus orders our priorities when he said in Matthew 10, 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The truth of it is only when you love, when we love God more than we love our children, will we be able to love our children properly. Abraham loved Isaac. Yes? Waited 25 years for him. He loved Isaac dearly, maybe too dearly. Isaac may be coming an idol, and God puts Abraham to the test to see if Abraham loved God more than his son, and he tells him to do what? Sacrifice your son on the altar to me. And it says, Abraham obeyed, and he had the knife in his hand when the angel of the Lord said, Stop. That's obedience. Now, I know many of you have been angry enough with your children to say, I could have done it. <laughs> Matter of fact, that option is still open. <laughs> David is a man after God's own heart, but he failed to train up his children in the way they should go. He excused their sin. He did not see them as God saw them, and he did not treat them as God wanted them to treat them. And the outcome of this is a son who has rebelled against his father's authority, and even more importantly, a son who is rebelling against God's authority. You know, the, true, the application for us is we need to ask God to give us eyes 
to see our children and our grandchildren from his point of view. How does God see our children? How does God see our grandchildren? What's his perspective on them? As much as we love our children and their children, God loves them more, far more. And I'm not convinced we believe that. God, no one loves my kid like I do. Jesus Christ created them. Jesus Christ laid down his life for them. He loves them beyond our comprehension. We want to make our children happy on earth. God wants to make them holy so they will be happy in heaven forever. Amen? We want to help our children avoid trials and troubles so they will be comfortable. God arranges for trials and troubles so they will be Christ-like. And he does the same for us, does he not? And those trials and troubles are expressions of his what? Love, his care. Our Heavenly Father is the perfect parent. And we know Father knows best. You know, I'm one of the things Marion and I were talking about this week. Our Heavenly Father is the perfect parent. And if God, my Heavenly Father, is very willing to let Brad struggle and endure trials to grow him and mature him in the faith, then why would he not also love my children and your children and your grandchildren the same way? So when God wants to mature them, don't interfere. Let God have his way. Ask God to show you what he wants you to do. Verse 6. Then the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. The people of Israel were defeated before the servants of David, and the slaughter that day was great, 20,000 soldiers. For the battle was spread over the whole countryside, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Here's the principle. Disobedience always produces defeat and death. It's just a question of when and how. Now, the forest of Ephraim is unknown to us today. We, it's thought to have been north of Mahanaim, a few miles in the region of Gilead. Rob will show you a slide of that. This terrain is very rough, very rocky country. There was oak and terebinth trees, and it's really covered with prickly and thorny undergrowth, potholes, pockmark, etc. And remember that Absalom's army is largely yeoman farmers. Farmers, not professional soldiers. David's forces are professional soldiers. They're trained, they're equipped, they're experienced, and David's warriors have fought multiple battles over decades together. Very, very experienced force versus a larger force under Absalom, but untrained and ill-equipped farmers. So God probably directed David to choose this particular terrain because it favors guerrilla warfare. It favors much smaller forces and Absalom's larger army is going to find it very difficult to maneuver through thick forest and pretty tough going. 20,000 casualties are an enormous number of fatalities, right? And that would be true today with 7 billion people on the planet. If there was a battle and we lost 20,000 casualties in one day, let me tell you, it'd make headlines for months and months and months. Interesting, the text says that the rough terrain killed more people than the enemy soldiers killed. And we don't know exactly how that occurred, but the Bible gives God the credit, not human effort for the warfare, for the battle. 
God uses, of course, his creation on a routine basis to accomplish his goals. Verse 9, this next section is going to review the death of Absalom, how it occurred, and interestingly enough, why it occurred. Verse 9, now Absalom happened, underline that word, happened to meet the servants of David. For Absalom was riding on a mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of an oak tree, and his head caught fast in the yoke, so that he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while a mule that was under him kept going. Verse 10. When a certain man saw it, he told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in a tree, or in an oak. Verse 14. They have a little conversation, and he says, Look, if you had killed him right now, I'd have given you a reward. So they have this conversation, which we'll get to in a second. Verse 14, Joab says, now I'm not going to waste any time with you here. So he takes three spears in his hand, thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was still alive, hanging from the tree, from the oak. The ten young men who carried Joab's armor gathered around, struck Absalom, and killed him. Verse 16, then Joab blew the trumpet, that's how they signaled, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained the people. Now that Absalom's dead, we don't need to continue the war, right? Verse 17. They took Absalom and cast him into a deep pit in the forest and erected over him a very great heap of stones and all Israel fled each to his tent. Here's the principle. God's work in accomplishing his will is often invisible, but always successful. God's work in accomplishing his will is often invisible, but always successful. The truth of it is God is always working and probably 99.9% .9 of his work is invisible. We don't see it. We do not see anywhere near the invisible work of God. The spiritual realm is beyond our vision, but God is extraordinarily active. Whenever the Bible says, and it happened, or and it came to pass, that means that God, the Holy Spirit, behind the scenes is shaping the circumstances in order to accomplish his purposes. Absalom just happened to meet David's soldiers. Now, we talk about divine appointments. This was a divine appointment I think Absalom was really wanted to miss. But God had arranged a divine appointment with Absalom and David's soldiers, and Absalom was fleeing, obviously, from them. And the mule just happened to be riding under the branches of a great oak tree as he was trying to escape. He just happened to get his head caught in the oak tree. I have no idea how that would work. <laughs> I do understand how when you're hanging, a mule can ride out from underneath you, so he's left hanging by his head in midair. He just happened to be alone at this time. Everyone else had panicked and fled, so there was no assistance. His troops were all running away. Who captured Absalom? God. God captured Absalom, and he used the branches of an oak tree to get it done. Right? No human can take credit for capturing Absalom. Now, what's interesting is we know that Absalom took great pride in his hair, right? It would be more than ironic if the source of his pride became the instrument of his death. Pride goes before a fall, right? You might recall that in prior history, Samson had a really bad hair day with Delilah as well. Cost him his strength and his power as well. One of David's soldiers just 
happens to see Absalom hanging in the tree and tells General Joab, who promised him a reward if he had killed Absalom on the spot. It seems as though Joab had quietly spread the word among the troops, you kill Absalom, I got a reward out for you. Now, he probably did it pretty quietly because he didn't want David to hear of it, but it seems as though it was understood that someone who killed Absalom would have a reward. Now, this soldier is pretty wise. This certain soldier is a man of principle. The soldier says, everyone knows that the king commanded not to touch Absalom, right? Spare his life. I'm not going to go against the king's order. Now, I want you to think with me a little politically. You're Joab. You want Absalom dead because he's revolting against your king. You know the best way to get him killed? Put a reward out so somebody else will do it for you. And then when word gets out about who did it, you can claim ignorance and let them take the fall for it. Or even better, once they take the fall for it, you execute them. Shut them up and you'll be a hero for David. You killed the man who killed David's son. Absalom's dead and you get the credit. And the person who did the deal, you killed even though you rewarded them to do it. Sounds like Washington, D.C., doesn't it? <laughs> Politics never change. I was reading a, a work today on a, a book this morning and last night a little bit about, and they said arranging for political assassinations is very easy. Making it look like an accident is cheap. You have to pay extra to make it look intentional. <laughs> That's a little perverse, but... That's the world we live in. So, interesting, Absalom had murdered his brother with violence, and now Absalom gets himself murdered with violence. What goes around? It's really ironic that Joab is the one who killed Absalom. Joab was the go-between, remember, who petitioned David to bring Absalom back from exile. So you say, well, how come Joab was not afraid to disobey David. I mean, Joab's the commander, David's the king. Why would Joab just be willing to kill the king's son and not fear him? 10 years before this, David did what? David commanded Joab to kill Uriah. Joab knew that Uriah was a righteous man. Joab knew that David was committing adultery with Uriah's wife. And Joab obeyed David. He didn't protest. He did what the king commanded, even though that he knew Uriah was righteous. So now David commands Joab not to kill unrighteous Absalom, and Joab does it anyway. David abused his kingly authority in murdering Uriah, is now powerless to protect his own son from death because David's sin had compromised his moral authority with Joab. He didn't have any credibility anymore. He couldn't say, why did you kill my son? Joab says, you had me kill Uriah, you hypocrite. He was righteous and your son deserved to die. How dare you confront me about killing a rebel who wants to kill you when you killed a righteous guy so you could have his wife. David had completely lost all moral authority with Joab. When Joab saw David disobey God, then he was teaching him that it's okay to disobey you too. Joab can now blackmail David. He's got the goods. 
because he assassinated for him. See, when you sin and I sin, we are leaving an example for other people to follow us. You're always leaving an example, right? For good or for bad, how we behave matters because people watch. There are lots of people watching us. When David sinned, he led the way for the people following him, including his own children, that they could sin as well. Now, Joab disobeyed David, number one, because he wasn't afraid of him. Number two, he had taught him how to sin. Number three, he knew that as long as Absalom lived, further revolt was possible. Joab's major sin was he didn't let God deal with Absalom. He said, I'm going to take care of him myself. Have you ever felt that way? God, if you give me three spears, I'll take care of them. Right? Those people at work, we can fix that. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah, you got their name right here. I can tell, right? It's interesting that God uses both an inanimate tree and a disobedient mule and a disobedient soldier to accomplish his purpose of preserving David's throne and destroying Absalom for his rebellion. Every circumstance in our lives are custom designed by Almighty God to produce in us what his good pleasure is, which is to make us like Jesus. So when you have circumstances, they're not accidental. They're by design. And all of this is evidence of that. So Absalom's buried like a dog in a hole. No honor, no ceremony. Remember, goodness, this is probably 400 years before Achan. Achan is the thief who stole from God, stole from what was supposed to go into the temple out of Jericho, hid it in his tent. What happened to him? He was stoned to death and they threw him in a pit, just like Absalom, and covered him with a heap of stones, just like Absalom. It's just a pile of rock saying, here's a testimony to an evil life. Absalom had sinned against God by revolting against his father, but he also sinned against God by revolting against the Lord's anointed. God had told David and Israel, this will be my king. So David, when he sinned, he's confronted by Nathan, and David confesses and repented. Who confronted Absalom with his sin? Who's supposed to have confronted Absalom with his sin? His dad. And David didn't do it. Absalom's at war with God, and David's called to fight God's battles. David forgot that God's enemies are my enemies. Do you understand that? God's enemies are your enemies. Now, you're commanded to love your enemies, but you're not commanded to co-sign their sin. Amen? Amen? That's where you pray for wisdom. Lord, what does this look like? How do I behave like this? David forgot that God's enemies were his own enemies, even if it was his own son. To agree with an enemy of God is to share in their rebellion against God. See, Absalom was doomed from the beginning because he was going to be king over Israel and God said, you're not king over Israel. Solomon is the next king, not you. Absalom said, I'll kill my own man and I'll take the throne myself. Who are you declaring war on when you do that? God. Almighty God. I would recommend you not do that. That has a guaranteed probability of a negative outcome. The real king of Israel is who? 
God, and he chooses who he wants to rule over his people. And he chose David, and then he chose Solomon. And Absalom didn't like it. So the battle's been won, but the king has not been informed. The king's three, four miles back in Mahanaim. We're going to run into this guy, Ahimaaz. Ahimaaz, he's the son of the high priest, who's Zadok, and he's a well-known runner. Apparently, this guy is pretty fast, and he asked Joab's permission to run the three miles to the city and give David the good news. And he's really young. He says, I'm going to bring in the good news, and I'm going to get praised, and I'm going I'm to be the bearer of good tidings. He's really young. He hasn't thought about how's the king going to respond when he finds out his son has been killed, right? He's young. Joab, on the other hand, has killed so many men that one more death, it's, yeah, it's almost meaningless, you know, like having breakfast. You have it so many times, yeah, another breakfast. So Joab says, no, Ahimaaz, you're not going to run. I'm going to send this Cushite, this Ethiopian servant, to run and tell David. Now, David has a history of responding badly to bad news. <laughs> he responds badly by killing the messengers. It's already happened twice before. Ahimaaz doesn't know that. Joab knows that. Joab goes, <laughs> if I send the son of a priest there and David loses it, kills the son of a priest, that's not really good. But the Cushite slave, eh, more expendable. I'm sorry, but that's how they thought. That's what life was. He knows David's going to be really upset over Absalom's death, but he doesn't know he's going to respond. But, so he sends the Cushite slave to run, and Ahimaaz pesters Joab, and Joab says, okay, run. Takes your head off, he takes your head off. He didn't say that, I said that. So David's sitting at the gate. He's waiting for news, and Ahimaaz gets to David first and informs him, God be praised, your soldiers have won a great victory. David says, is my son Absalom safe? And Ahimaaz lies to him. He says, there was a great multitude, but I, I, I didn't know what was going on. Joab had told him he was dead before he sent him. So Ahimaaz is lying. Verse 32. Then the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? That's all David can think about. Second time he's asked the question. And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of the Lord my king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. So what is he saying? He's room temperature, king. What is this? Verse 33. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he says as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. These are heart-wrenching words, almost beyond comprehension. I struggle with the words to even try and describe what's going on. Here's the principle. Those who follow God must surrender their personal passions to his perfect plan. That is so easy to say, and it's almost dying. It is dying to do it, because surrendering your personal passion, surrendering your personal point of view, surrendering your belief system, surrendering how you see it, and what you think God ought to do, and submitting that to his perfect plan. David was looking for good news, and he got bad news. 
Everyone else thinks it's really good news that the rebels have been put down and defeated and David's kingdom has been preserved and David doesn't see it that way. The only good news for David would be that his son is still alive. David wants it both, both ways. David alive, Absalom alive, and they're reconciled. So he grieves the death of his son, clearly. Not one word is said about the 20,000 soldiers who were killed because of Absalom's rebellion. Not one word is said about their parents and their brothers and their sisters and their family and their grief. This is all about one rebel who created havoc and death. It's the greatest loss of life in Israel since Saul's defeat at Gilboa decades earlier by the Philistines. And all David can see is Absalom. And you're torn because you understand it's his son. You understand why he's heartbroken. On the other hand, you have to contextualize and say, David, this ain't all just about you. There's 20,000 people that have died to keep you alive. He's also grieving because he knows that it was his sin and his failure as a father that led to Absalom's death. See, Absalom, his son, has died, but his son died in rebellion. He didn't die reconciled. Absalom died rebelling against God and rebelling against David. He wishes he could have died in Absalom's place. And who did die in our place? Jesus, Jesus Christ died in our place and took our sins so that we have a relationship with God. That's what David wants to do. He lay willing to lay down his life for his son. What David needs to do is surrender his personal pain to God. He needs to ask God to help him understand his grief from God's point of view. We need to do that, you and I. You're going to have grief. You and I are going to have struggles and suffering, and you're going to have joys and sorrows too. And you know something, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, we always need to ask God, give me eyes to see this, right? Help me understand this. And you know when we normally do that? When it's painful. How many of you, when you have a wonderful thing happen to you, say, Lord, help me see this from your perspective? No, we say, more of the same. You know, try the same thing tomorrow. You know, come on, Lord, you know, you can do this every day and it'd be great. Won the lottery today. How about tomorrow? Right? We really need to ask God to open our eyes to see both our successes, not our successes, but quote the good things and quote the bad things, quote the easy things and quote the hard things. God, give me perspective. Open my eyes to see it. And David needs to surrender his personal pain to God. There's no mention of prayer here. He doesn't say, even like Eli, it is the Lord, be it to me according to his word, like Mary or Hannah. It's missing. It's a lesson for us. Verse 19, verse 1. Sorry, chapter 19, verse 1. Then it was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. The victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people, for the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. It says they went and crept in back into the city, not victory, but they were ashamed. Verse 5, then Joab came to the house to the king and said, today you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants who today have saved your lives and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. 
For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Man, that's all the way to the liver. Verse 7. Now therefore, arise and go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Verse 8. So the king arose and sat in the gate. Here's the principle. You cannot fix what you will not face. When God confronts you with the truth, obey it. Now you can run from the truth, but truth will run faster than you can escape. And it will run you over from behind. You cannot escape truth. You can pretend that it doesn't exist. Denial does not fix anything. Denial only delays and denial, when it delays, the problem gets bigger. When a doctor says, you have a diagnosis of X, and you say, well, I don't, I don't want to deal with it. Let's take a vacation. That doesn't fix the disease. It just means it continues to grow, but you don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with it. You cannot fix what you will not face. In any situation, in any situation in life, Task number one is always getting an accurate picture of reality. What is truth? What is real about the situation I'm in? And you pray about that. You say, Lord, open my eyes to what's truth, because I can be fooled by circumstances, events, people. Heck, I fool myself pretty regularly. <laughs> David's unwillingness to face the truth about his son, his family, has led to civil war. That's a pretty severe consequence of parental denial. Civil war, 20,000 dead, major consequences. Facing the truth can be painful, but denying the truth just magnifies the disaster. And David's grief right now is compounding the disaster. Joab confronts David's head up. He says, David, you're being disloyal to the troops who've risked their lives to save yours. You care more about your son who tried to kill you than you care for the people who risked their life to save your bacon. If this is the thanks they get, they are going to desert you tonight and you will be in disastrous trouble without an army. Either you reward loyalty or it's going to be lost. You need to reorganize your priorities, David. You're not seeing the nation or your family from God's point of view and David, Joab, has no sympathy with his grief. He tells him to get his big boy pants on, face the facts, and take action now. 20,000 soldiers have died. Your kid was one of them, and he deserved to die. Not easy, but necessary. The truth hurts, but denying the truth is lethal. In essence, Joab says, David, grieve later. Right now, you got work to do. Act like the king you are, and thank your soldiers for their service. David does. He listens to advice. He acts accordingly, he thanks his troops and retains their loyalty. Truth is sometimes very hard to hear. Would you agree? Is truth necessary to hear? Of course. Joab is loyal to David. He's not always obedient to David. He's a lot of times out of control. He does what he wants with the army. But he's loyal enough to tell him the truth. 
this week, you and I will probably encounter truth from people we don't want to hear it from. You might be married to one. Marin gave me some truth this morning. I didn't want to hear it. And I'm rationalizing in front of the mirror. I said, babes, we got to pray. So I start praying. She says, man, you, you just run. You think I'm doing my hair and you want to pray like now. Are you in charge? Well, of course I'm in charge. <laughs> that was the wrong answer, just in case you were wondering. I mean, I'm just being transparent with you folks. I mean, that's kind of how it works, you know? She had the curling iron at the time. I didn't, so I was, you know. Truth is not always comfortable. As a matter of fact, it seldom is, but it is so necessary. One of the reasons we come to hear the word of God every week is because it's truth. It brings us back to the straight and narrow. It pulls us back and saying, you're going off the cliff, but I like off the cliff. Not when you land, you won't like off the cliff. Come back to the center of the road, right? That's the point of truth. So David, to his credit, responds to truth when it's hard, very difficult, and he's blessed to have a friend that tells him the truth. So for us, it's pretty clear. Number one, when someone speaks truth to you, ask the Lord to help you understand it and obey it. And number two, when God calls you to speak truth to somebody else, be willing to do it, even when it's uncomfortable. So I'm gonna review just briefly our five key points, then we'll have about five minutes for Q&A, and then Tom will come with our, our prayer and praises. We must see our children from God's point of view and treat them accordingly. That is not easy, but it is essential. Number two, disobedience always produces defeat and death. It's just a question of when and how. Don't ever let Satan lie to you that disobedience pays. It creates losses and only losses. Number three, God's work in accomplishing his will is usually invisible. When you think God is doing nothing, it's because you can't see. 99% of what he does, you can't see. But he works. The spirit comes like the wind. You can't see the spirit, but you see what happens. Number four, those who follow God must surrender their personal passions, priorities, preferences, prerogatives, whatever you want to say there to his perfect plan because Father knows best. And number five, you cannot fix what you will not face. When God confronts you with the truth, obey it. Okay, now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.